uh, quickly um, some things to be thinking about and to be praying about. I did have um, um, a couple of prayer requests and then an announce a couple of announcements, I guess. Um, the, uh, the 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 lady that we have been praying for it says in our bulletin Wendy's mom, who had was going through liver failure and things like that. Um, she is now um, been. Um, what did you say? Her she had she was going into liver failure, but through antibiotics and it things was like that. Because she had AFib for over a week and a half, and all the medication they were giving her, it was not helping the AFib, and it was damaging her liver. Okay. So she went, they found that when they transferred her to another hospital, the new doctors did new tests and found that she had liver failure. Okay. And so that she is now out of the hospital. She's actually, um, um, her name is Suzanne. So that's a praise that uh, she's doing much better. And um, wow, pretty, uh, pretty difficult. So then the other thing is, is that uh, we all know who Betty is, uh, Betty um, Kenworthy and her son-in-law, Bob Lawrence, um, had uh, not to, uh, it's, it's been several weeks now, I think, that he had surgery on one of his knees. And as a result of that surgery, he got an infection in one of his knees. And um, now they're looking at that antibiotics are not helping. And they're looking at the possible amputation of his, of his leg. So something that we can be in prayer for, uh, for Bob Lawrence and for his family and for Betty and for uh, just to be thinking about them. I do also want to mention uh, we've got about, I think, 22 people signed up on the list over there for this coming Friday. Um, Good Friday. We're, we're, uh, we're uh, hoping that uh, any of you that want to come and, and share a meal with us, Susan and I are going to treat you to a rib dinner. And um, yeah, it's not kosher, just letting you know, but it is good. But uh, last time I checked, uh, um, there's, we shouldn't uh, have a problem with uh, eating pork on Good Friday anyway. Um, hopefully you won't have a problem with that. But anyway, um, um, we will, uh, if you are planning, a, check on that. And I don't know if some are on that that maybe mentioned to us that they were coming. And sometimes uh, that happens in passing. And so, so check on there, see if your name's on there. If it's not, write it down. We simply just need a count so that we know what, how many to, how many ribs to buy and all that kind of stuff. But we hope that you will all be there and um, very, very uh, and looking forward to that. And the service before. And the service before, yes. So our, our service starts at 5.30. Um, just kind of a time of uh, being still and knowing that he is God and just reflecting upon that, that passion uh, of Jesus uh, as his... He awake, makes his way, or the beginning of that, where he makes his way to the cross. And just taking a moment out to, to focus on that. So we hope that you can come. Again, sign up, please. We, we invite everybody that's here. We want you to, to come. and um, So we look, we look forward to that. So that's this Friday. So 5.30 service, probably about 6 o'clock, I think we'll be eating. Something like that. Um, come hungry. Um, and... Um, It'll be exciting. So, Well, we have, um, last week I was thinking about the experience we had. If you remember what, what, what we did is we had some garbage cans up here and everybody had kind of a scrabble tile. And they were, uh, I, I don't know that everybody participated in that, but if you remember what we had is that tile. 
and and we were, we were to kind of think of, a, of how, what that might describe in our lives, the sin that might be in our lives, and and we took those tiles and we threw them in the garbage can in an effort to say, I'm throwing away my sin. Um, and uh, it, it was kind of incredible to watch that, just sitting here and kind of just watching, you know, some people kind of drop something in the bucket. I, I guess the way I understand it is, is that um, when we got done with that, that I don't know if it was my kids or, or who it was that it, um, that pulled those tiles back on because we had to put that back in our Scrabble set. <laughs> so, so some of you guys that, that ended up going home with them, oh, no, it was actually an extra Scrabble set. Anyway, but we pulled it out anyway in case we lose some. Um, but what was interesting though is, um, what was interesting is that I think that there was, what I understand is there, there was a couple of communion cups that got thrown in the garbage with that and that inevitably what we had is we had a couple of tiles with a little bit of, of communion juice on them. And I thought to myself, you know what, um, the, this, this communion or the cup that gets thrown in with the sins in a, in a couple of tiles, it, it, they, they came out stained in other words. But I think that that seems appropriate, doesn't it? Uh, the blood stain of the cross over the top of our sin. Isn't that kind of cool? Um, I don't know that God does anything greater for us, you know, than to make us that offer of forgiveness, to make it possible for his blood to be a cover for, for, for the sin that we've committed in our own lives. I don't think that there's, he does anything greater than that. And yet, if, we, if that were all that there was to it, it would be too little. The forgiveness of sin may be God's greatest gift, but it is not the end of the story. There's something, I think, far greater than that that goes beyond, beyond that in our relationship with God. The text that we're going to be looking at this morning is Mark chapter 8, and I encourage you to, to, to turn to that. It's, a, I think, a real fascinating statement that we see in this passage here. Um, that occurs in the lives of the disciples in that first century. Uh, and I think that I, I think it has a great deal to, to say to those of us who are at this end of the journey here in the 21st century. But the passage, Mark 8, verse 27, is a passage that that is familiar. By the way, did you, you did see that I, yeah, you did, good. Um, it's a passage that is familiar with uh, virtually everyone, I think, that who has been around the church for very long. If you, if you haven't heard this in Mark 8, you certainly have heard it in Matthew chapter 16. You've heard it read or, or said at some point, but Mark has the words this way. Here's what he says. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Verse 29, but what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. That statement may or may not mean a great deal to you and to me on this end of this journey. And quite honestly, most people who live in the United States are not raising questions that, 
about whether Jesus came as the Messiah or not. But it was the most profound question that could have ever been asked in the first century. You had a bunch of people of Jewish heritage who were, who were waiting patiently for God to speak, and it had been about 400 years of silence, and, and they were hoping, they were waiting, they were, they were waiting for anyone to come along who could be this person for whom they waited, this Messiah, this one who had come to bring redemption to Israel. In fact, this isn't the first time that this set of questions and answers has been, had, had, have been offered. If you back up just a couple of chapters to, the, to Mark chapter 6, um, in Mark's gospel there, Mark chapter 6, this same conversation is coming at the end of the story of John the Baptist. Mark chapter 6, after having been sent to prison in this particular text, this is what, Mark's, uh, what it says in verse number 14. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work, with, are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. That was really a common image of Jesus, to be a prophet to be a good man, to be a teacher. But the answer that Peter gave was the answer that was supposed to have been the answer to, that, that everybody was to give. He is the Messiah. Unfortunately, by this time, people had a fairly warped opinion of really what that meant. For a good Jew in the first century, under Roman domination, being held against their will to a to a rule that they totally disagreed with. Anybody coming in the name of D David would have come as a conqueror, not as a servant. They would have come prepared to lead Israel back to its glory days. They would have, the anticipation of one in the lineage of David would have been coming as a king who would set Israel back on its rightful place. And Jesus, if you think about it, began to fit that image. I mean, if you could imagine yourself as an oppressed people, underneath someone else's domination, waiting for, for somebody who would come and relieve you from that kind of domination, to have experienced Jesus the way that, that the disciples had experienced Jesus would, would, would set you up to give the answer that Peter gave. Only it would have been colored by what you were hoping for. If you're looking for a conquering king, how nice would it be to have somebody that could take five loaves and two fish and, and, and feed a whole army? Uh, who could take a man who was lame and then heal him? Who, who, could, take, uh, who could raise a person from the dead? What, what kind of military leader could you have asked for? Think about that. I mean, he could just, if, if they were in a battle and all of his men started to die, he could just raise them back up from the dead, right? What kind of a military leader could, could you have asked for any greater than one who could do miracles at the drop of a hat? And so in that, in, that, in that sense of expectation, if Jesus is the Messiah, he could be the one that we're waiting for. The one that would deliver us from Roman domination 
and Peter, both in hope and in, in great risk, he says, in answer to the question, who am I? He says, you are the Christ. And I don't know whether to say that as an exclamation point or as a question mark, right? Did Peter say, thou art the Christ, like we say it in good old King James' language, right? Or did he say, you're the Christ? But see, that was the hope, right? It was the dream that someone was going to come and to be the person that they needed to be. And the whole Old Testament story leads us to this place that Jesus would come and that there would be the one who would be the redeemer of Israel. And Peter takes this enormous risk and says, okay, I think that you're him. And, and he talk, and, and talk about dashed expectations, right? Look at the next segment of this text. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And notice that what Mark does here in verse number 32. It says, he spoke plainly about this. You need to make sure that you understand Mark's insertion. He, he wants you, he wants you, the reader, to be sure that you understand G Jesus could not be misunderstood at this point. He was being absolutely clear. Peter and the rest of you disciples, I am here because I have to suffer and die. That's not what the expectation was. And so what does Peter do? According to this verse here, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It's, it's really an extremely strong word. He, he repeatedly rebukes him. I, I, I can just see Peter taking him by the toga, you know, and, and pulling him out to the side and say, Jesus, what are you doing? What are you talking about? You can't do that. That's not what messiahs do. Look at verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. I don't know, I, I don't know any conceivable way to capture what that must have felt like for Peter. I tried to put myself in a position where I could figure out what that must, you just took the risk of your life. You're Peter and you just took the risk of your life as a good Jewish man and you said, I think that you, Jesus, are the Messiah. And Jesus comes along and he says, I'm going, to, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And Peter stands up and says, wait a minute. No, you're not. And Jesus says, get behind me, adversary. Pow, right? Man, that had to hurt. That had to hurt. But I think the... I think that the key is found in verse 33 there, when it says, you, you've got the, your mind set on the things of men, not on the things of God. You've got your mind, you're thinking like a man. You're, you're not thinking the way a disciple's thing. You're thinking like a human thinks. You're thinking like a Jew thinks. 
You're, you're thinking like an American thinks. You're thinking like a person who wants out from under domination thinks. You're thinking about this from the wrong perspective, Peter. Now, I, I don't know how much of this occurs in the actual conversation between Peter and Jesus, but I, I just got this sneaking suspicion there's a whole lot more going on here than, the, than what's written. And, and I can just see Jesus saying, Peter, don't you remember that day down at the beach we were fishing? And I came up to you and I said, come. Remember what he said? Come, what? Follow me. Sounds so simple, right? At the risk of pointing out the obvious, do you know where you have to be standing if you're going to be following somebody? Behind. You've got to be behind them. By, by the way, that is literally the word that is used. Peter, come behind me. Uh, you, you know what happens in Mark chapter 8? Exactly the same word. Peter, go behind me. Get behind me. See, Peter's problem is that he got ahead of Jesus and he started to do the, do, do the leading instead of, his, instead of the following. He, he was going to tell Jesus what a Messiah was supposed to look like. He was going to tell Jesus how it is that, that you follow after identifying him as the leader, right? And I come back and, 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 and remind you of what Jesus said, I must suffer. It wasn't a choice. By the word, that word must, when he said, I must suffer, that occurs in this text. Uh, that actual, this, this word, it's used sparingly in the New Testament. And it's used exclusively to talk about something that God ordains to happen. It doesn't happen when you say it has to happen. It doesn't happen because somebody powerful says it has to happen. It doesn't happen because a Roman says that it has to happen. This happens because God says it has to happen. I must, by divine ordination, I must suffer these things. And here's what I'm trying to tell you. While redemption, remember that's what we've been leading up to since the beginning. We're looking at God's story and God's story leads to that, that story of redemption. While redemption is absolutely incredible and there would be no, more, no one more convinced of that than I am, while being able to take your sin and to pour it out and to get rid of it, well that is so utterly remarkable, that's not the end of being a disciple. That's only the beginning. That's just the start of the story for you and for me. This, this is a story of what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, someone who, because they have been redeemed, have, have, have identified, with, uh, identified Him as the Lord of their life, and as the Lord of the life, they are willing to say whatever it is that you ask of me, right? I'm willing to do wherever you say to go. I'm, I'm willing to do that, God. I'm willing to go there. And so let's ask, where is Jesus taking us as disciples? 
By the way, I understand Peter's reservation. Don't you? Jesus just got done saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. And he says, come follow me. There's some people you don't want to play follow the leader with. <laughs> right? I want you to look at this text here, because here's what, what it means to be a disciple. Here's what you signed up for when you decided to say, Jesus is the Lord of my life. Look at this, verse number 30, 34. Then he crowd the, called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come, follow, behind, right? If anyone would come, if they would get behind me, after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. See, the implications of this statement here about following Jesus are really very clear. And I'm, I'm not going to try to hide them from you. I'm just going to say them as clearly as I know how. The very first thing that he says about being a disciple is that you and I must be willing to die to self. That's really not a popular trait, by the way, is it? And it doesn't come easily to any of us. We are by nature, we are by nature born selfish. I mean, you guys have been parents before. Some of you are still, I mean, we're all, you're still parents, but I mean, you still have kids at home. But that begins with us as children, doesn't it? I mean, and we see that in children when they are demanding and they're always wanting their own way. And they, the very first word that you learn from them or that, that they utter out of their mouth, a child, is mine, mine, right? The very first word. And they have trouble sharing their toys. They don't have any difficulty in saying, no, I don't want to do it your way. And I know at this point you're probably thinking I'm talking about my kids. I'm talking about all of us. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about all of us, right? No, you can't. That's mine. Right? We, we, we do that. Today. We don't deny self easily. But you've got to remember that that's exactly what this thing is about. It's about self-denial. It's about submitting yourself to, to what the Lord wants from you. That's, that's just the way it works, right? This whole thing is about taking up your cross, which, by the way, we've turned that into a lot of things that it wasn't in the first century as well, right? I mean, do you know what wearing a cross... Oh, I forgot my cross today. I have to look at that one over there, I guess. What wearing that cross... Anybody have a cross around their neck this morning? Is Mary has a cross around her neck. Anybody else have a cross around their neck? I'm trying to look see if Carol was playing with a cross. No, okay. Thought it looked like one. Um, so everybody stare at Mary's cross there. Um, you know what that would have been equivalent to in in first century culture? 
I mean, you could have had a guillotine hanging around your neck, or you could have had an electric chair hanging around your neck, or a firing squad, you know, a, a, a group of firing squads maybe hanging from your neck, or a lethal injection, right? And, and so you look at that thing there. That was never intended to be pretty. They would have said, that is death. Nobody would have said, oh, that's a lovely cross you're wearing, right? Because that's all that it ever meant. It meant death. It meant, if you were a Jewish, Jewish person, you were walking down a road somewhere and, and sitting, on the, or sitting on the side of the road, and you saw a cross, you would have thought, the only thing that would have come to your mind was somebody died there. To a Jew, if you remember your Old Testament, for anyone to die on a tree meant that they were cursed from God. And so Jesus comes along and he says, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. Die to yourself. And for many of us, it's, it's, it's not bad things like, you know, typically we think of things like drugs and alcohol and that kind of stuff. It, it's not Think more practical. Die to yourself. It, it can be houses. It can be cars. It can be computers. It can be cell phones. Things that, I mean, it's the stuff that we live with every single day that, that's a good thing. As long as you own it and it doesn't own you. And so he says, one of the implications for being my disciple is that you're willing to die to yourself and follow me. And you've got to remember where he's going now. He's going to the gallows. He's going to a cross and he's asking you to come. There's nothing easy about discipleship. Everything is easy about salvation. Right? Everything is easy about salvation. Please don't misunderstand me. Forgiveness is easy for you. It was pretty hard for him, but it's easy for you and me. All you got to do is say yes to him, right? And he says, come to me and I will give you salvation. You come to me and, and identify with me. You participate in my death and my resurrection and I will give you salvation. The challenge isn't getting saved. The challenge is living like a disciple. The second implication of that, by the way, in this text is that we have to determine our price. We have to determine our price. Uh, Mark 8, verses 36 and 37 reminds us that we all have a price. I, I know that you don't like, to, like, like that, and, 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 I, and I think that you would deny it, but the question still is in the text, just as clear as I think it could be, what would a man exchange for his soul? Well, we read about it, don't we? We read about it from time to time. Uh, we read about the professional athlete who trades his soul for drugs. We read about the finance man who trades his family and his soul for a bigger paycheck. I was reading about some, I, was, I, was, I asked Susan about this. I came out of my office and I said, oh, I can't remember this. Maybe she'll remember it by now, but there's, uh, we were reading, I was reading or listening to some news story about some actor or actress recently who was brought up Christian, and for the life of me, I just can't remember who it was, but Susan and I were just talking about it, and, but now they say they're searching, 
And so they've been diving into things like they tried Judaism and now they're into Islam and they're checking that out and they're, they're exploring and they're searching and all that kind of stuff. And, and, I, and I, I remember thinking to myself when I was seeing that, they're not going to find any answers there. But at least they recognize what the rest of us have finally come to recognize that whatever it is that the world has to, answer, has to offer is not the answer. See, some learn that harder than others. But everyone, they say, everybody, I don't know if this is true or not, but everyone, they say, everyone has a price. We have traded our soul for moments of anger. We, are, we have traded our soul for, for the fleeting, for a fleeting glimpse of what it might mean to be happy. We have traded our soul for friendship. We have traded our soul to be popular. We have traded our soul for a lot less because all of us at some point have a price. And the challenge of being a disciple is to learn that you don't have to do that. You don't have to be popular. You don't have to be wealthy. You don't have to have friends. You don't have to be any of that if you have Christ. The rest of that, if you have Christ, is going to take care of itself in the long run. So Jesus says, what would you trade? Peter would trade, by the way, an earthly Messiah. Later he would trade. He would trade almost anything later on just to get out of that courtyard. Well, the third thing that he says is that you have to take your stand. Uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 38, if anyone is ashamed of me in this generation, the, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him. And Peter, just a few weeks from now, in this text, will in fact turn his back on Jesus three times and say, I never knew you. It's easy for Peter. I mean, it's easy to condemn Peter's Peter, at, at least, uh, because none of us have probably ever done that before. I remember one time the first Christian t-shirt that I got. I was in Bible college. I'd just gotten to Bible college. came from the University of the Bible College. And somebody, I don't remember where I got it from, but I remember distinctly, I'd, I'd, I'd never wore a Christian t-shirt before. Anybody ever wear a Christian t-shirt? Anybody not ever wear one? Oh, so we've all worn one. Uh, I'd never, you know, I'm, I'm actually, to, even to this day, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty picky about the, the t-shirts, Christian t-shirts that I wear. I, I don't want them to be cheesy. And if some of them are really cheesy, would you say, uh-huh? I mean, they really are. Um, when it comes to Christian teachers, I'm, I'm, I'm really picky. But, but I remember, I was, I was, like I said, I was going to Bible college at the time. I, I had this, somebody gave me this cheesy t-shirt, Christian t-shirt, and on it, on it, it said something like, we love Jesus. Um, and and I, I was on my way to the store, <laughs> And when I got there, I got out of my car and I realized that I had this really cheesy I Love Jesus t-shirt on. And I made the decision. I, I did something weird. I took the t-shirt off, turned it inside out, put it back on. 
and went inside the store before anybody saw me. I turned, did all that stuff before anybody saw me. Now, I want to I be able to tell you this. I'd like to be able to tell you this, that, that it, it wasn't because I was ashamed of Jesus, but because of the te- cheesiness of that T-shirt. But to this day, I still don't know the answer to that question. Why did I take that off? Why? Probably the same reason I don't like it when people know that I'm a preacher. Because there's just something hard about being a disciple of Jesus in public. For me. Maybe not for you, but for me. And Jesus says, you want to be my disciple? You follow me. Get behind me. And following me means that you can't be ashamed of me. You've got to own it. I am a disciple of Jesus, and I come to this text, and I find myself challenged with what it means to really be a disciple. Not just to take advantage of the salvation that God offers, but to really be a disciple. Because frankly, the call to discipleship is much harder than I ever expected it would ever be. And honestly, Jesus does not always meet my expectations. Things don't always turn out the way that I think that they're, going to, that they're supposed to. And I wonder if Peter must have thought, you know, did I, did I get it wrong? What, was it a mistake? Is he not the Messiah? Did, did I blow it? Did I misunderstand? This isn't what I thought I was getting myself into. And I think that that's why the next text is there, by the way. And I, I'm not going to preach on it. Otherwise, we'll be here until Easter which, by the way, is next week, okay? In case you didn't know that. The next text is the Mount of Transfiguration, and if you didn't pay any attention to it, it would sound like this in Mark chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him... Who's the first name on the list there? Peter. What a statement of grace, isn't it? Get behind me, Satan. Six days later, who's the first person he calls that? is grace. And they get out of the transfiguration and Jesus is transfigured before them and Moses and Elijah and, 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 and there and then all of a sudden there's this cloud. And I don't have time to go into the, all the Old Testament ramifications of, of that, but you just think about the mountains and you think about the clouds and you think about Elijah and you think about Moses and all of a sudden you've got all these kinds of images that would be just flooding to your brain, right? And in verse 7 there's this verse There's this voice of God that says, this is my son, listen to him. And the clouds peel back, and there's no Moses, there's no Elijah, and Mark is so abundantly clear in verse number 8 that they saw no one with him except Jesus only. This isn't about Moses. This isn't about Elijah. This is about Jesus. Peter, you were right. He is the Messiah. Listen to him. I I wish I could say this more profoundly, but I'm going to say it in the same way. This is God's son. 
listen to him because he has all of the answers for life for your life for my life and he has and while discipleship is hard it is worth it and the invitation is always there every single month every single week every single day every single moment and it's not just about the benefits it's not just about the salvation that we get but it's about the challenge to be the disciple that God is calling you and I to be. And that means dying to yourself. I like the way that it says it in Matthew. Take up your cross daily and follow me. It's about dying to yourself. It's about following Jesus. It's about dying to yourself and giving your life to Christ and doing what God calls you to do, no matter how hard that is. That's the invitation. Let's pray together. Father, we, we come upon this week and we recognize that we're right there. We're, we're fulfilling, you're fulfilling all of Old Testament right in this one act. Redemption comes in the person of Jesus and we, we're excited about that. And Father, I know, I know personally that it's so easy to grab onto that salvation. The benefits. But not accept the responsibility of being your disciple. So Father, I just pray that for each of us as we uh, enter into this holy week, this passion week, that you would cause us to reflect upon the sacrifice that Jesus gave. But at the same time, God, to, to recognize what that means for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs>